Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real-world data. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Real World Talk. I'm your host, Zoe Lee, and today I am very honored to be a part of this conversation. We have Nancy Dreyer, who is Chief Scientific Officer at IQVIA, and also a returning guest, CODA's very own C.K. Wayne, our Chief Medical Officer. Nancy and C.K., both welcome, and thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Zoe. It's good to be here again. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. We're so excited to have you, Nancy. And personally, I'm just so excited for this conversation because I think between you and CK, there is so much expertise and brain power. I really want to spend our time together tapping into your heads and just exploring how you think. You know, I think two things that come to mind when we think about real world data is that there is a lot of promise, but there is also a lot of unknowns. And so with all of the expertise that you have built up, how do we think about the unknowns? How do we de-risk? How do we turn an unknown into a known quantity, right, that we can use for impact and use effectively? And so I am really looking forward to delving into that. And I think where I might start is something that was in the headlines not too long ago, which is throughout COVID-19, there's been a lot of research that's been put out. And... Very notably, there were two papers, one in The Lancet and one in the New England Journal of Medicine, both very reputable journals, came out, made a big splash, and then were retracted on the basis that they used real-world data that we could not verify. There was no way of tracing back and really understanding the raw data there. So, you know, maybe the first question, Nancy, is can you help us understand, like, why did these retractions happen? I'm not sure that the general public understands exactly what happened here and why they were retracted. It's an important question to examine, and I'm very glad you asked. Everybody trusts the New England Journal, the Lancet. We trust the peer review process. But this was a a colossal failure. And why did that happen? I think what it's showing us is the lack of familiarity with real-world evidence by most of the reviewers used by these journals. They come out of the randomized clinical trial background, and they believed the superficial reporting. Now, here's what I mean. Imagine coming out of nowhere, a massive network. This was 169 hospitals in 11 countries process where they had automatic downloads of all the electronic health records, the pharmacy data and other records. And they talked about active point of care, manual data verification. It sounds very good. Those were all the right buzzwords to talk about. But I could see how someone not familiar with real world evidence would say, oh, that sounds really good, big, thorough. But networks don't appear overnight out of the blue. There was no information available about who these hospitals were, how this network was financed and created. 
And for those of us who've been working in the field, we know that you start with one hospital and two and grow it and test it and verify it and validate it. And everything that can go wrong will go wrong and more. So I looked at this and I thought, why haven't I heard of this group before? What have they published? Because you don't come out of the gate with such a big network without having some citations for previous work. Usually there's a validation article showing why you think this network is credible. I didn't see any of this. Sounded like it was a network that was recently created. And if in fact the data are truly what they said, it's certainly a new network. So I think that people were fooled by the words without thinking through how that could be. And they were not appropriately skeptical which you should be of any investigative work, whether it's a clinical trial or a non-interventional study. I guess my last point that really amused me is one of their comments in the methods about why their work was so good was that they followed the recommendations of the user's guide on registries for evaluating patient outcomes published by the US Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Now that sounds really good. Except I'm a senior editor of all four editions of that book. And there's nothing they did that complied with any of the recommendations. So it's an example of the naivete to me of the reviewers. CK, what's your take here? Nancy, I think you hit on some really good points here. And, and I think that this is a case that we stand back a little bit, right? The saying of, you know, if something is too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. As you highlighted, this database, this network just came out of the blue. No one's really heard of them. There's no validation. There's no papers published to date. It's probably a little too good to be true. And, and I think that in terms of how we think about data, regardless of the source of data from real world sources, from clinical trial, is that as scientists, right, in the medical field, we have to, and especially everything that we've been taught in terms of what is good practice, the questions we need to ask, those standards that we apply to clinical trial data to see if it's a good clinical trial, is that same criteria probably needs to be in place for real world data as well right, is we need to think critically. And just because it's a novel situation, COVID is a novel situation for all of us, is the fact that the way we historically think about what good research is and what good data is, that should not be thrown out the window. And I think this case probably was one of those scenarios where many of those guardrails were lowered because of the need for quick data. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also one big impact of this is that it really puts a dent in terms of the trustworthiness of real world data. CK, you've been a clinician. I think there is what you see in practice. How does that affect the way that clinicians um, think about real world data and how much they're willing to trust it? I think this is a very important question. I think taking a step back, coming from a clinical and an oncologist perspective, where I grew up in the world of clinical trials, taught to trust the clinical trial process. And that really, truly is the only 
process by which we truly evaluate a treatment, right? That's a world that I came from. That's a world that I think most scientists come from. And in this discussion and this topic of real world evidence, real world data is a relatively new concept out there for many clinicians and there are skeptics out there. And I think that this is a very unfortunate setback. However, that's not to say that there have not been clinical trials and scientific studies that have been retracted in the past as well. So I think that this type of error, unfortunately, occurs throughout multiple different data settings and that we shouldn't focus on this one case to essentially downgrade the trustworthiness of real world data. I think this is a learning lesson for everybody. And I think we're in early phases of our understanding of real world clinical data. And I think that we could really truly learn from this and as a field could move beyond this. What are your thoughts, Nancy? I think it's a bigger problem than that, CK. I think the problem could be called fraud. And I don't know if this is fraud, but it looks that way to me because of when people, and all my colleagues, of course, are talking about this and have looked into it, the data tables that they posted, their exact similar distributions in different countries, that doesn't happen. We, we don't ever see that. So that doesn't make sense. And the question of fraud is equally pertinent to clinical trials. I think the issue you see here has to be put in that light. It's easy, people like to blame real world evidence because they're less familiar with it. But when you live in the world of clinical trials, fraud questions raised some right, some wrongly, when distributions come out different than you expected, or when investigators have made up their lab data in an effort to get promoted or further their careers. So there are a lot of reasons that people can act badly in certain situations. That's what this is an example of. The fact that it gets tarred, that real world evidence is what's tarred and not what makes these investigators have done this is the odd point to me. Now, on that point, Zoe, it's really interesting to me. People say some of the criticisms, well, the investigators didn't turn over their data. Now, I understand that for clinical trials. And we've seen that your audience may remember BMJ came out with a policy that everyone had to post their clinical trials if you wanted to be published there. And that didn't last because everybody has a reason they don't publish their clinical trials. But hold that aside. Imagine the corollary for real world data. I, I work at Acuvia. We have tremendous data assets around the world that we license, some that we create. Could you imagine putting up our data on 192 million people just in the US? That just doesn't make sense. The point is it's not so straightforward. And there are new paradigms that people could use. There's the GRACE checklist, which has been around since five years or so that a lot of people are using for reporting guidelines and to check. There are other guidance as well for good practice. And there's pretty much agreement on what you should be able to explain about your data set. So I think this is just a case where the New England Journal and Lancet haven't caught up with that yet. Yes, and, and Nancy, I think you highlighted a very good point there is the fact that in real world data, we here at Coda, our data set is nothing compared to what you have. And even for us, it doesn't make sense to post all of our data 
out there. And you talk about privacy issues and everything, even though they're de-identified, there's still concerns about that. And I think that, and I often tell folks when they ask me about where we are in the journey down real world evidence and the maturity to our ability to understand it is that I tell folks that when it comes to the clinical data perspective is I think we're very early on in this journey and trying to establish and also follow best practices that have been published, such as what you highlighted, the GRACE criteria. And also being transparent is very important in this journey because I think we're all here to learn from each other. And ultimately, I think that it's a working cross-functionally throughout different companies, stakeholders. That's when we will advance this world, hopefully, and get real-world data to a place where clinicians don't question it. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned transparency, CK. It's a popular buzzword. To me, for Surgisphere in this example, the transparency I would expect to see is talking about where the data came from. So the fact that the 169 hospitals in 11 countries, and you can name the countries, naming the countries is not enough. But we all, and I've worked using third-party analytics or own data for more than 30 years. And we have ways of describing it. I used to work for United Health. We would describe our data as from uh, health insurers and maybe not name every one of them. But you do acknowledge network participants And that's the transparency, I think, that's where it starts with. The new buzzword we're hearing that called is provenance, describing your data of provenance. Where did it come from? Who's in it? Who are these tertiary care hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. At least advance our vocabulary and hopefully our expectations for what we expect to see for describing the qualities of real world evidence before you begin to trust any analytics from them. Absolutely. I think this is a field that is evolving and growing quite rapidly. And it's very exciting to be in the midst of it and be amongst the group of thought leaders and companies that are working to solve this problem and provide an actual answer to these questions. How do we make sure that a surgisphere doesn't happen again? I think, Nancy, you've alluded to some of the flags that you saw when you were reading through the studies, but how do we recognize those areas? How do we think more critically about when is the right time to use real-world data and how is the right way to use real-world data? So I think there's a use case aspect to it, and then there's the data itself. But take us on a little bit of the journey of how we might critically think about this so that we can become more educated consumers of this data. I really appreciate that question. And maybe we could take COVID as an example. Everybody's interested in that. And the big debates are, how can you trust anything that's not a randomized controlled trial? And it's to me, it highlights the important complementarity between trials and non-interventional data or the real world data. I almost see the real world data as bookends or the first and the last chapter. In the beginning, I real world evidence to generate hypotheses because I don't want to have a randomized trial over every single thing I could possibly be interested in. I want to hedge my bets and put the resources onto things that will work. So, for example, I'm running a large community-driven COVID registry um, at helpstopcovid19.com, but it's community reporting for more than 20,000 people in the United States about their symptoms and symptom progression and testing and their use of 
prescription meds and non-prescription meds and vitamins and minerals. And the question, is there something in there that makes you resistant to COVID? Because we know not everybody gets sick. Or if you get COVID and you're known to be exposed to it, it makes you have a less serious course of disease. You don't want to do a randomized trial over every one of those hypotheses we're exploring. But as we pursue those analyses, maybe it's vitamin D, maybe it's vitamin D in combination with something. Then we can do a good trial. So that's the middle of the story. And then I think the real world evidence comes back in at the end because you're always doing your trials in a narrowly defined group. By definition, you want a homogeneous group. And then your question is, how generalizable is that? So that's when we look again at the real world evidence. Nancy, I think that your analogy of the bookend is perfect. I just love it. And I think that the steps that you highlight fits with our thinking at CODA as well. And I think coming from a clinical perspective, the way I look at the scientific process, right? Answering a question. And this goes back to, I think, many of our primary schooling days of forming a scientific hypothesis or a question. And that I don't know if you all remember that scientific hypothesis must be both testable and falsifiable, right? Now, the only way to do that in medicine is through a clinical trial. But there are, as you highlighted, Nancy, there's scenarios where clinical trials are probably not reasonable. And I think these are scenarios where the, where the situation that we're investigating or want to know about is rapidly changing, the actual dynamic nature of it. I think COVID is an excellent example. And from my world, from oncology, one could say that's happening in oncology today where drugs are being FDA approved really rapidly and the clinical trials that led to the approval were designed many years ago in the absence of what is now currently available. So the field is so dynamically changing that sometimes clinical trials may not, or pure clinical trials may not be the best way to answer a question. And the best way may be sort of this hybrid approach, right? Just to add to that, because oncology is such a fascinating area for a researcher, because what I see, and this is not my specialty area, but what I see is it's often a single drug, but it's often a combination and sequence that is really the most powerful tool. Where I can't imagine being in the position of wanting to create a trial for every possible combination and sequence. I don't know what the average cost of a trial anymore these days is, but my I would pull out a number out of thin air, maybe close to 10 million, and that's not a giant trial. So that's pretty expensive. You're doing some of the most interesting work in oncology where, just as an example of this, where we're doing long-term follow-up after trials directly with patients. Part of it is to discover if it was a treatment failure, what happens to them next? So they're not, it's not part of the trial anymore, but we're using observational techniques to keep in touch with the patients, find out what treatment they're having now in the company that sponsors that is the sponsor of the original trial, and these were treatment failures, but they're saying we can learn that it might be the one-two punch. And by having this observational network, we're going to figure out what that best second is. Then we'll study that. That's right. That's right. And I think that's a beautiful use case and this marriage between clinical trial data and real-world data. And because I do believe 
as that setup proves, right, was trying to actually test is the fact that we can learn from patients throughout all phases of their treatment journey, whether it's on clinical trial or off clinical trial. And that if we throw away a whole area of data, we would be doing, I think, ultimately the patients a big disservice, so to speak, because of the fact that we're not using and we're not learning from what is happening to them off of these clinical trials. So I think that is a very logical and I think a beautiful way, uh, proof that these two principles can actually come together. You know, we can take that one step farther just for the sake of really examining this question, though, in CK. And I'm listening to you, CK, and I'm thinking about my COVID work and looking at non-prescription treatments because there's some theories I don't know if they're right or wrong, that maybe antihistamines have a beneficial effect. And there's another one that a certain anti-ulcer drugs might have uh, an effect of lessening the severity of COVID. We don't know yet. But the economic incentive for a manufacturer of a non-prescription drug to conduct big exploratory trials, even in an important area like this, there is very little incentive. That's model right. we use for non-prescription drugs. So is that okay to say, we'll never know because there's no economic incentive to get an answer? Of course not. Of course not. So that's where the hope comes that we can from these non-interventional studies. That's coming back to my book analogy, whether it's a bookend or the first part of the story. Does it look like there's something there? If so, then there'll be a lot more interest in coming up with a budget to study it. But meanwhile, we're not going to study every antihistamine combination, isolation, and et cetera, et cetera. I think you get the idea. That's right. And actually, you bring up a scenario that I used to highlight when I was in practice. My patients would bring this up is, well, how do we ever design clinical trials? Or how do clinical trials get developed? And the fundamental understanding is that if there's no financial incentive, the study will probably not be conducted, right? And which is a very sobering reality that we all deal with. And I would say that most of the times when I end these discussions with my patients is they end up somewhat having a negative view on medicine and the entire clinical trial process. But I think that using the observational study, learning from what's going on in the real world, because these drugs are being used, right? Is that that helps to really fill that void and be that bookend and hopefully bring all that back so that we can use all of that information again. And I think that, you know, looking where I stand today and thinking back to those discussions dating back nearly a decade ago, I'm just really excited that we are even having this discussion today because it's proof and testament that we are moving beyond that. And I think what we'll see, putting it all in perspective, the real world evidence tools are most productive for things that are sizable effects. For example, a sizable benefit or a sizable risk. I started out in drug safety studying something that caused a rare but very serious birth defect. The risk in babies that were born to mothers use this drug versus ones who didn't, the relative risk was infinity. And that's a big risk. No, but you didn't need to do a trial on that. And then we look at the FDA and we look at their approvals, particularly in rare diseases. And we see that if you can show a benefit that's say a, a doubling of improvement in survival um, or quality of function, you often will get an approval just using trial 
in combination with real world evidence. But for a lot of the chronic diseases, hypertension and the like, you don't see big benefits like that. So I think we don't want to just talk broadly real world evidence versus clinical trials, but you always have to take it in the context of the disease, how big of an effect you think you can see. And so context does matter. Absolutely. And I think this speaks to the actual, to understand the actual use case, because as you highlighted, there are scenarios where probably real world evidence or real world data is not going to be helpful or should not be used. And, and I think that's probably where these rare diseases, which cancer is one of them today, I consider because of the very uh, niche drug development that's happening are very targeted and thereby almost every molecular target is almost rare nowadays. And so I think that understanding the actual use case and applying it, applying this data in the right scenario is definitely, I would say, a fundamental principle. Yeah. And I think that there's also the aspect which we could go on and have a whole nother separate podcast just on the topic of once you find the right use case, then what's the data to apply to it? I mean, real world data spans so many types of data as well. And when you think about the journey and all the various phases that real world data could be applied to, you could be using anything from claims data to patient reported outcomes to EMR data. And all of those then have their own sets of context in which you have to think about the validity of that data, the use of that data, and how we really put that, like you said, Nancy, in the right context. So that's even, I mean, that's a whole nother topic to talk about. But I think, you know, I think we started to touch on this. Ultimately, when we're doing all of this work around real world data, we're doing it for the purpose of finding better ways to understand health, really faster ways of understanding it, more efficient ways. And there are so many applicable use cases here, but like, how do we maintain that North Star, right? As people like us, we're working in this industry, we're really trying to move forward what we can do with real world data. How do we keep that North Star and what should that North Star be of why are we doing this, right? Why are we working so much with real world data and trying to find ways of using this in a trustworthy way? In the United States, the 21st century cures has given us a real impetus for thinking through these very questions that we're discussing today because they have to have draft guidance for the use of real world evidence by the end of 2021. And that's coming up pretty quickly. So the FDA is doing a lot of really interesting work to understand appropriate use cases. And they work closely with the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy Research, run by former FDA commissioner, Mark McClellan. They've had lots of think tanks, workshops, and white papers about the critical stages. So what we hear over and over is when you're evaluated the potential for using real world data or the potential contribution. First, you'll have to look at what the data is, how it's structured, can you get it into an analyzable format? The provenance, where does it come from? Why was it created? Who's in this data set? And are they likely to stay in that data set long enough for me to find and observe the things I'm interested in? And then always how you put it together imagine 169 hospitals, they're not using exactly the same format. That's a big job. So how you integrate it and the curation for checking it. And the curation 
is something that non-trialists, I think, don't begin to understand how important this is and the fact that it's got to be ever vigilant and ever changing. I do a lot of work with electronic health records, as I know you do. And in my work, we do injury analytics in professional sports, two high-profile leagues that both have common electronic medical record programs in the league. We get nightly downloads. We do a lot of careful curation, but things happen behind the scenes in an electronic medical record system that you didn't create and you don't own. Things that are intended to help advance the business or help their functionality, but they can often interfere with your data transfers and your data downloads. So you always have to be vigilant. You always have to check. We had a whole publication on our work for the National Football League just describing how we do the curation because it is so complex and how we do the quality control to make sure we have completeness. So these are things that are different from trials, but that's the real art. And that's where experience comes in. Absolutely. I and mean, I think that those are all extremely critical, right, for us to keep on track to make sure that we achieve the goal that we all want to achieve using real world data. And I think that from my perspective, and I think most clinicians, and I think the, I would say that probably the whole, the entire field is that I would say that one of the, the things that we all need to keep in mind is what benefits, right? What is the ultimate benefit of a project that we're working on of what's the ultimate benefit of the data that we have access to. And we talk about this from the provider world quite a bit, you know, and this is a what we call a learning healthcare system. And this is a topic that's actually very dear and close to my heart is that I would love one day, right? We're all talking about, and I think everything we're talking about is to ultimately improve patient care. And this is from the trial perspective, more upstream, so to speak. And I'd like to focus a little bit on the downstream component, and that is at the point of patient care, right? Is that I think we have enormous ability to improve our understanding of, of how we're delivering care to our patients and also learn from that. And that is a principle of a learning healthcare system is that you learn from the data that's both in front of you and in clinical trials and understand your ecosystem right around you and using that data to pivot rapidly so that you could ultimately improve your healthcare delivery to your patient population. And I look at it from both perspectives because at CODA, we do work in the provider world as well. Nancy, you probably know this, at CODA was founded by oncologists. And I still think that largely today, we really truly still focus on the value that our data can provide to the provider. So that is another North Star. I know you can't have two North Stars, but I think they can come well together in terms of guiding us, right? What is the ultimate benefit we're trying to achieve? And I think that we would all agree that it's to benefit the patient at the end of the day. And I think the big takeaway from this conversation is just throughout this entire process, we need to think very critically about every step that we are taking. It's not an easy thinking, right? There are a lot of aspects to take into account. I think this conversation has been a great glimpse into the ways that we can start thinking about these. And 
what are some of the areas that we really need to focus on and make sure that we're always being, I think, Nancy, I've heard you use this phrase before, right? Being active thinkers and not passive thinkers. I mean, I think that's something that's just so important to making sure that we can continue, right, this forward progress with using real-world data and bringing that in a way that can really improve patient health. Whether you're a researcher, a participant in public health or medicine, or a patient, that active thinking and being an active participant and evaluating things yourself, that's so important from so many perspectives. Absolutely. Well, I want to say thank you both again for taking the time to give us a window into how you think and being that role model for how all of us can think, whether we are, like you said, a patient, a researcher, a data analyst, whatever the role is, we all have a role to play in this and we owe it to ourselves and all of the patients that we're impacting to do this. So thank you again. I really hope that we get a chance to talk again as there are numerous and endless number of topics to talk about. Thank you very much for including me in this conversation. Thank you, Zoe, for having me. And Nancy, thank you for being on. I had such a wonderful time with you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk. 